You're listening to a podcast from Civil Wars in History. This online conference was a collaboration between the Centre for War Studies at University College Dublin and the Society for the History of War. The conference was supported by the UCD School of History and UCD Humanities Institute and took place on the 10th and 11th of September 2021. Papers and panels covered a range of theme topics from the early modern period to the 20th century. Three of the conference keynote lectures are now available as podcasts and videos via UCD Humanities Institute and on historyhub.ie. In this episode, The Changing Logic of Civil Wars, a keynote lecture by Professor Status Calavas from the University of Oxford. I'll be uh, speaking about uh, the logic, the changing logic of, of civil wars, which is the title suggested by the organizers. When we think about uh, civil wars in, in such a macro perspective, uh, we have to, in a sense, revisit our assumptions. And those assumptions tend to be very disciplinary based. Uh, I've always tried to um, cross those disciplinary boundaries uh, with less or more success, but it's not something that's easily done. And I'm going to try to uh, describe how I'm, I'm doing it um, as part of this uh, presentation, which is also part of the, the book project of mine. So in a sense, Historians have traditionally studied individual civil wars. Uh, the best books we have, for example, say on the Spanish civil war, tend to be single case studies uh, that examine various aspects, both the facts, but also providing interpretations about the causes, the dynamics, and the outcomes of civil wars. We also have from historians a number of small comparisons, but they are not as common. And generally speaking, historians avoid larger comparisons. And there seems to be a fear of theorizing as well among historians, um, because that seems to reduce the complexity uh, of factors that get into the uh, process of explaining why, for example, certain civil wars break out. Um, There is also, and um, that's perhaps less well known, a, a restricted understanding of civil wars. Very often historians tend to describe and study civil wars that are called by that name rather than civil wars that are not. And it's very interesting that historians, uh, in my view, tend to to overly follow uh, the nomenclature that the politics of the civil war has produced, instead of having an understanding of civil wars that transcends uh, the politics of civil wars. And I'm happy to talk about that more about uh, if if you're interested. So for example, wars of occupation or decolonization that have a very strong dimension of civil war in the sense that they fit different local factions, domestic factions against each other, uh, not only are not called civil wars, but very often uh, the term uh, seems, appears to be threatening. Uh, On the other hand, social scientists, uh, this is primarily about political scientists. There are a few sociologists who study civil wars, but it's mostly um, bread and butter for political scientists, especially the so-called security studies field. focus very much on large comparisons that allow the application of quantitative methods, especially at the macro level, comparing conflicts to each other, especially countries to each other. But there's also a very, uh, very weak, rich field of micro level quantitative studies that look at a variety of uh, um, outcomes within and processes within single countries, but in a quantitative way as well. Uh, When it comes to macro level studies, what political scientists try, in a sense, to identify is the set of minimum common structural factors that explain civil wars in general. That is, what is 
what are the factors that um, we can you know comparatively identify as a common cause of fall or most civil wars so civil wars are understood as a common phenomenon uh, and that assumes uh, a very strong homogeneity assumption that civil wars are in a sense all civil wars are versions of the same thing they may have their differences but essentially they're the same thing both spatially and temporally and this is uh, i I, I would um, argue that's one of the weakest assumptions, the most difficult assumptions to defend, and it's an assumption that is not really very much discussed among political scientists. And there is also a post-1945 bias uh, when it comes to political scientist studies of civil wars, precisely because uh, the data that is necessary for those quantitative studies tend to be available for that period. So there is a sort of blind spot to whatever preceded uh, modern uh, civil wars. So the challenge, it seems to me, is to improve our understanding of civil wars by combining the different strengths uh, of historical and social science approaches, as opposed to uh, ignore uh, other fields. Of course, uh, in the course of my uh, work on civil wars, I realized that very often people prefer to be um, uh, happily isolated within their own discipline than to try to integrate in creative ways um, approaches that are not usually combined. And so what I would think would very much improve the study of civil wars would be for historians, even the historians who study single um, cases of uh, cases of single civil wars, uh, to be aware of the work on general trends and to be more um, open to comparative insights and for political scientists to be more open to the dynamic nature of civil war rather than the static structural nature of civil wars and also to accept that there may be um, sources of at least systematic heterogeneity. Uh, perhaps not all civil wars are of the same kind and the same sort, which is something that comparative analysis can provide. Very often people criticize comparative analysis from outside political sciences comparing apples and oranges, but um, as they always respond to this kind of critique, they're both fruits, and to understand their differences, we have to compare them. And so, what um, I think is, is a good way to combine uh, those two is the so-called analytical narrative, which is a way to uh, provide a narrative, a dynamic, to see dynamic processes, but informed by, uh, by analytical insights. Uh, I'm not going to go into uh, those details, but what I'm going to provide today is to, to focus on a key issue, which is, you know, how can we think systematically about heterogeneity and its sources? as opposed to saying, I think, rather unproductively that each case is unique, uh, or all cases are pretty much the same, how can we think about how civil wars differ from each, from each other in a systematic way? Uh, and I want to do that by introducing uh, a sort of more macro-historical perspective, which is something that, uh, for example, Sinisa has been doing uh, very successfully. Uh, and also, on this side, connect that to another project of mine, which is uh, rethinking political violence uh, more holistically, uh, but also more systematically. So I think a source of confusion is very often comes from the names we give uh, this phenomena, which tend to, 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 um, to correspond rather, I would say, problematically with other concepts, for example, interstate war or revolution. Um, as such that very often um, our analysis cannot proceed beyond these kinds of definitional issues. 
Um, and that requires, even though the approach is very macro, it requires a very good understanding of the various dimensions of civil wars, what we call the meso level, what kind of actors operate, what motivates them, how they're organized, how they fight, and so on and so forth. This is the work that I've done very much from a micro perspective. So in a sense, even though this is a very macro perspective, I bring a lot of my insights from uh, my mi micro work uh, to um, engage these kinds of questions. So some of, some of the questions we may want to ask is, for example, how, how have civil wars changed say, over the past two centuries or so, um, and to try to understand why uh, through the how. And I'm going to focus on uh, the following uh, uh, issues. Uh, there, there is a fifth one as well, uh, processes of civil war, war first, the actors that are engaged in it, the type of international system that uh, influences them and the kinds of outcomes they produce. Uh, and what I'm going to try to suggest is that different historical eras contain, of course, a very broad multitude of conflicts, but at the same time, they seem to be characterized by ideal, typical, or modern civil wars, civil wars that tend to, in a sense, characterize those periods in a way that is um, quite strong, uh, and even though they may overlast them, they're not as modal in uh, subsequent periods. Uh, and uh, these changes, I think, tell us a lot about how the international system, how states, uh, and how warfare change over time. So my simple, very simple historical periodization, uh, and of course, I, I welcome feedback on that, is the following one. There's a period which may be described as long peace that goes until the, uh, you know, that begins uh, with, with the American Revolution, roughly, but essentially with the end of the Napoleonic Wars and goes until the beginning of the First World War. There is the period uh, that combines the two world wars and the interwar period. The Cold War, the period that precedes the end of the Second World War, and the post-Cold War period, which uh, may be open, but perhaps has ended. And then I've added uh, an additional one, which I think um, may have started with September 11, uh, and I'm going to explain why I think we may be uh, facing a new period. Of course, as you can see, there is a sort of uh, bias towards the present. The past periods tend to be much longer than the present ones, which is inevitable from you know, the perspective of the present looking back into the past. So let me say a few things very, very briefly about each period. The period of long peace is characterized by you know, very roughly what may be described as an attempt of the major powers, in a sense, to prevent new wars from emerging and balancing each other in a way that is not violent. So suppress, suppression, for example, of revolutions, the concert of Vienna, and so on. Uh, and of course, I'm discussing here, and I'm going to return to that, uh, the systemic world, the, the areas that are part of the international system, rather than the parts that are considered to be outside of it. And it's uh, perhaps sometimes easy to forget um, that the international system was not global. Uh, in that period of time. There were large spots, spots of land which were considered from every respect as being external to the international system. There is a model ideology of revolution that is going to motivate a lot of civil wars and, and it may be described as the radical, radical bourgeois liberalism. And, and this is the idea you know, that's associated very much with the so-called era of revolutions. 
Uh, it's an idea, it's an ideology that combines um, uh, anti-regime, anti-dynastic uh, ideas on the one hand, and the belief that the, uh, the optimal uh, form for organizing societies is the nation state. Uh, and very often the actors that engage in what will become revolutions and civil wars, and we'll see how those two things are connected, tend to be secret societies that have a transnational dimension often. And, and that's why a lot of the wars in this period, even though they have a character that's very nationalist, uh, tend to be wars that have a broader ideological agenda and very often attract foreign fighters. Uh, which is tends to be forgotten today. And they're fought conventionally in the sense that uh, uh, revolutionaries try to form conventional armies that are equipped and organized as mirror images of the state army and can face the state army on the battlefield. And very often, the people who organize those militaries, those insurgent militaries, tend to be officers uh, of uh, imperial uh, armies, for example, who defect to uh, the insurgent army. So we're not really talking about insurgencies, even though this is a term that is used to describe, again, part of the uh, definitional confusion. We're talking about uh, conventional wars for the most. Uh, and the, as I said, the international system has this kind of balanced uh, multipolarity uh, with an emphasis on maintaining the imperial status quo. So there is a direct clash uh, between the challengers who want, in a sense, a new system uh, and the powers uh, want to suppress uh, this wave of change. Um, and obviously, they, eventually they fail, as we know, uh, and a lot of civil wars erupt. Uh, those civil wars, when successful, very often are, are described as national revolutions, and they create new nation states. So, and outside the international system, what international relations scholars very often describe as the extra-systemic world, we have a very interesting world which is characterized by imperial consolidation and colonial conquest. And there the form of warfare and the types of factors involved in fighting is fundamentally very different uh, from the civil wars of the international system because the technology gap between the sides that confront each other is so enormous. Uh, and that does not um, allow uh, proper conventional wars to be fought. Uh, so we have this kind of shadow world, um, which uh, is not perceived as being part of the international system, where, for example, most of the atrocities are going to be committed. Uh, so uh, in, in many ways, uh, the connection between atrocity and civil war is something that comes from the extra-systemic world during the period of the long peace. Uh, very often, those conflicts, uh, especially the wars of imperial conquest, are described as small wars precisely because they're perceived as requiring a small effort due to the technology gap between the two sides. Or normatively, they're not perceived as being wars between equals in a normative way. Uh, and so a lot of what, in retrospect, we may describe not entirely correctly as irregular peasant wars uh, during that time are not really perceived as civil wars. This is how, in a sense, the terms that are being used, which are inherited to us, tend to be endogenous to the conditions that prevail at the time. The second period they called Long War, uh, and it's characterized by a violent order, uh, 
obviously the, the two global wars are extremely violent, but also the in-between period tends to be extremely violent, characterized, for example, by the activity of militias that have emerged from the First World War. This is a period, for example, that Robert uh, has studied quite extensively. And the main ideology uh, of the, um, uh, the insurgent side tends to be uh, what may be described as urban and working class socialism, uh, eventually, or, or communism. The idea that new regimes that represent the working class has to be have to be created through processes of violent confrontation, which are described as revolutions, but very often take the form of civil war. And so the main actor in this period are those left-wing revolutionary vanguards um, that have been described uh, extensively, both by practitioners and by historians. Uh, and the warfare is going to take the form of either violent urban uprisings uh, and coups, but also very often conventional civil wars that spill over. And so if you think about the Russian civil war, the spillover of uh, the Russian Revolution. Uh, and this is very much informed uh, by the, uh, the situation of global war uh, that allows very rapid military innovation, that allows uh, international actors to become active uh, in a very um, uh, open way in civil wars. To just give you the example of the Russian Revolution, at some point it becomes an international war with troops from a variety of different countries fighting uh, on the side of, of the whites uh, in the Russian civil war. And of course, the outcome is going to be regime change with the creation of, of this new, uh, at least that's the objective. It's, it's not very successful initially. It's just the Soviet Union becomes uh, uh, a socialist country. But the idea is to push for that agenda globally. And. Uh, what is very interesting during the same period is also the evolution of extra-systemic war, wars into what is going to evolve into counterinsurgency doctrine. Uh, that is, the first versions of counterinsurgency have to do with revolts of colonized populations and groups uh, in the colonies. So the counterinsurgencies, for example, of the Spaniards in Morocco, uh, the French in Algeria, the uh, during the period before the Second World War, the uh, Italians in Libya uh, are characterized by a very interesting evolution of this kind of irregular war that entails, for example, the uh, pioneering use of air force, again, with uh, tremendous atrocities. Moving to the Cold War, uh, which is characterized by the bipolar order to superpowers, again, who, uh, because of the nuclear weaponry they have at their disposal, do not want to fight against each other. We have, in a sense, uh, the opportunity or the, the space for the creation of the so-called proxy wars. And here we have uh, a transformation of the working class urban ideology of the previous period uh, into a model revolutionary ideology uh, on a global scale, which is go going to be both very nationalist uh, in the sense of being anti-colonial, but also very much based on the peasantry uh, as opposed to the working class. Uh, and the main actor are going to be this anti-colonial national liberation movements, which are very much inspired by, by those ideas, but also transform, appropriate them, and use them uh, first to achieve independence and then to uh, uh, either protect it or to secede from newly independent uh, post-colonial uh, states. 
And here the warfare is going to be something that I've described as robust insurgency, irregular war or guerrilla war as in its modern form, which is really invented during uh, in China during the first phase of the Chinese Civil War and then really uh, expanded very much uh, in Europe and Asia in the context of the Second World War. And this is another example in which you know, the Second World War is the laboratory of innovation for civil wars. A lot of the so-called partisan or resistance wars are civil wars within occupied um, nations. And it's going to become the model form of warfare during the Cold War uh, in that uh, international system that I just described. Uh, the outcome is the creation of new states. Uh, the extra systemic space becomes incorporated into the international system. And in a sort of very ironic way, the dream of the first generation of revolutionaries, the radical liberal bourgeois uh, revolutionaries who want to create nation states becomes the reality. The post-colonial world is the world of international nation states. And we're moving into the very, the, the very close to the present, and I'm going to conclude with that. The post-Cold War period is a period characterized by what may be described now as the liberal order. It's uh, uh, the, the ideology of the insurgents or the challengers very often tend to be uh, pre-modern, quote-unquote, or uh, very often perceived as incoherent or extremely local. It doesn't articulate a universalist global uh, sort of progressive agenda. A lot of secessionists during that period or a lot of um, uh, rebels during that period tend to have uh, a sort of very basic ideology about, uh, you know, local populations being repressed, even when this appears to be window dressing, for example, in places like Sierra Leone or Liberia, but not this kind of big universalist ideologies of the previous era. Uh, the actors are going to be both on the state side and the rebel side, extremely predatory, kleptocratic, uh, at best regional secessionists. But there is a very, uh, very, again, localist connection. There's a lack of major resources. There are no um, big powers providing assistance, training, and weaponry uh, to those rebels. And the, the, the warfare, the model warfare of that period is what they describe as metric but non conventional. We're not talking about guerrilla wars anymore, but the state in many of those conflicts is so weak that it resembles one of the rebel militias. So the fighting tends to be characterized by, so, so to speak, front lines that take the, uh, uh, you know, that resemble checkpoints, for example, rather than the asymmetric logic of the regular war. Uh, and the international system is characterized by unipolarity. There is a very strong uh, liberal agenda characterized by developmentalism, development aid and humanitarian assistance, lots of NGOs that move in uh, zones of conflict, especially after settlement has been reached, uh, funded by international foreign aid to provide um, some sort of nation building assistance that sometimes persists over time very quickly, but uh, tends to be extremely weak, extremely stable. And so we have situations like the DRC, Congo, for example, which is in theory at peace, but in practice experiences a situation of low intensity but continuous warfare characterized by also atrocities that uh, tend to be quite pronounced. So failed states, humanitarian interventions, post-war flimsy democratization are the characteristics of, of that liberal order. And perhaps my feeling is that this ends uh, with September 11. Uh, and what we get uh, during that period uh, is what may be described as a post-liberal transition, uh, 
with the uh, emergence of a new revolutionary ideology that uh, is not universalist, but is, is very uh, transnational. Uh, and this is revolutionary Islamism or jihadism, which uh, dominates uh, in a very large proportion of contemporary wars. Uh, very often the actors tend to be uh, what may be described as urban lumpen youth uh, living in the outskirts of cities, even in the developed world. If you see the sociology of the foreign fighters in Syria, you have those characteristics very much using that ideology as, uh, as, a, as a sort of uh, discourse of emancipation. And the warfare, surprising, surprisingly, tends to be conventional. If you look at the way ISIS fought in Syria, it was a conventional war with siege warfare, with established front lines, uh, with movements of troops, uh, very, very different from the guerrilla wars of the previous of the Cold War period. And of course, that's associated uh, with what may be described as hesitant. They don't want to say uh, declining unipolarity, but certainly, as we've seen in Afghanistan, the uh, uh, less and less willingness of the United States and the Western world to be massively involved in a lot of these conflicts, and also the rise uh, of regional powers uh, and also powers that are not, proper speaking, superpowers getting involved. I have in mind Russia, but if you think about the Middle Eastern situation, you have regional powers like Turkey uh, or Iran becoming involved in a variety of conflicts around them, not just neighboring countries. Uh, and so that gives you a, an overview uh, of you know, all these periods organized a little bit in a way that is, of course, that simplifies a lot, but allows us to understand how a variety of global changes can, in a sense, be reflected uh, in those civil wars. So to conclude, I would say uh, that identifying modal types does not, of course, preclude heterogeneity. There are lots of exceptions. There are lots of variation. The, uh, the world is, is full of very interesting um, um, variations. Uh, but at the same time, I do think that this captures something. And it, uh, it leads us to, um, if we want to think about structural variables, uh, I think four of them tend to be very interesting changes in ideology, especially global ideology. Uh, what is the ideology of revolution in different historical periods? Uh, soci sociological trends, whether population, for example, is peasant or urban. Uh, technological change that allows uh, fighting to happen, uh, expressing you know, different kinds of balance of power considerations. And then, of course, the international system. I would say focusing on those four dimensions, we can actually get to a pretty good understanding of those changes. Uh, that doesn't exclude dynamics, but allows us to explain dynamics within single civil wars, I think, in a way that is uh, uh, more sensitive to those general trends. And to conclude, I would say that uh, it allows us also, and I'm speaking here as a political scientist, to escape from the developmental and humanitarian perspective that has dominated the study of civil wars in political science. The discourse in political science is we study civil wars in a sense to prevent them, and to prevent the human cost associated with conflict and to help countries develop. But I think I'm here much closer to the historian perspective, which sees, or the sociological perhaps perspective, which sees civil wars 
as the process of fundamental um, political change over time. Uh, and so the political dimension of civil wars, paradoxically, has been has disappeared from political science and is much more present among historians. And I think that is what this kind of scheme allows me to do, is to open a door to bring uh, politics back into the study of civil wars. But again, as a social scientist, I'm interested in doing that uh, with more discipline, uh, organization, uh, and systematization. I'm going to conclude with, with Tilly's hypothesis that war makes states by saying, well, that um, civil wars also make states, but they do it differentially. Uh, not all civil wars produce states, but a lot of civil wars in different ways, depending on the time and uh, uh, location they are in, their association with these broader trends, allow us to understand how state formation happens. So that's a nod to, uh, to Sinisa uh, and to the sociology um, that is interested in precisely that dimension that, that very often is completely missed out in political science where civil war is just a factor of state collapse, not a factor that allows our understanding of the transformation of state structures. So I'll stop here. I hope I haven't given you too much. Thank you very much for your attention. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Civil Wars in History. This online conference was a collaboration between the Centre for War Studies at University College Dublin and the Society for the History of War. The conference was supported by UCD School of History and UCD Humanities Institute and took place on the 10th and 11th of September 2021. Three of the conference keynote lectures are now available as podcasts and videos via UCD Humanities Institute and on historyhub.ie.